From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone. From Long Island, New York, and currently residing in San Diego, California, she is the founder and CEO of SASMAX. Please welcome Dina Moskowitz. Woohoo! <laughs> She's here. She's in the building. She is Dina Moskowitz, and she is the founder and CEO of SAS Max. What is SAS Max? Well, most channel programs in B2B tech only get a 5 to 20% partner activation. SAS Max is focused on changing that by enabling companies to learn whether another company is actually a great fit for their channel program based on how they compare to your ideal partner profile. SASMAX provides the technologies, the tools, and the processes to help you by leveraging insights, intelligence, analytics, and expertise to help you set up the best possible channel partner program and set you up for success. They have been around for eight years now. They've totally revitalized the game of partner reselling. They have over 150,000 companies profiled on their platform. And today, we're, t- we're talking with the Sherpa of reselling, the Sherpa of partnerships, the shaman, maybe I should even say, uh, <laughs> in Dina. And our topic, very appropriately, is using channel partnerships as a go-to-market strategy. Dina, I think I have a, a decent idea of why this is on your mind, but maybe you can give us why this is on your mind and why it's important to you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And that was such an awesome introduction. And, and I think you kind of said in there why, you know, being here mattered. And, and as the, the guy who helps so many startup companies to go to market and, and refine their pitch and hone in on what and bring forward what makes them special, um, part of go to market strategy for especially for SaaS companies and B2B tech companies is do you want to go through a channel partner program or not? And it sounds really simple, you know, to just say, yeah, we want to have a, a referral partnership program or we want to have an affiliate program or a reseller program, but there's so much that goes into it. And I know that when I was first starting my first business, I didn't really know anything about it. And yet had I known a lot more about the channel before I started, um, I probably would have done a much better job in my first company of building a channel partner program in the right way and leveraging it and really 
you know, um, being able to have that company be more successful through the channel. So I love talking to early stage companies in tech who are looking at whether they should or should not build a channel. And so I'm really excited to be here with you. And I think this is going to be a fantastic conversation. We've never before on this show done a really deep exploration of what it means to set up a channel strategy. So we're going to unpack that as entirely as we can in the time that we have. Before we do all that, let's dial it back a little bit and learn more about you, Dina, who you are, and, and a little bit more about your background. Uh, I mentioned in your introduction, you grew up in Long Island. I'm curious to know, um, were you an only child or did you have siblings? And how do you feel, whatever, whatever your sibling dynamic was, um, what was it like and how do you feel it shaped your perception of the world? Oh, gosh, that's a funny question. Um, I'm one of two, two girls, right? So my dad was the only man in the house. Um, we did not have ever have to worry about the toilet seat being down. It was always down because there were three against one. <laughs> and my sister and I were very close and still are to this very day. Um, we have one of these um, abnormally normal families, which uh, always get along. There have never been arguments. We always figure out ways to resolve any issues that there may be. And I just I love my sister to death and, and uh, really admire her as well. So. Hope that helps. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the toilet seat being lowered, I have a funny anecdote <laughs> with that. Uh, I have forever been trained to lower the lid, not because I have sisters, I don't. It was three against one in the opposite direction in my house. Um, but because one of my best friends growing up down the street, they were three women in the family and I think two men. And uh, they would they had this little sign above their toilet and it was like this cartoon of a bear fall, like a teddy bear falling in. And it said, lower the lid ladies present a wet behind is most unpleasant. And, be and because I always <laughs> saw that I, that like trained me from the time I was like seven years old to never leave the lid up. So uh, that, that, that's my, that's where, that's how I can relate to that part of your story anyway. <laughs> That's great. Well, I know this is a webinar about channels, but that made me think of the sign in my orthodontist ceiling whenever I'd go there. And there was a sign and you remember these things forever. And it says, you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. <laughs> <laughs> my dad has forever. He, he has since the time I was a kid, he has used that, that uh, one liner <laughs> with my brother and I. So you had a really uh, abnormally normal family. As you said, you have a great relationship with your sister. How do you feel that has shaped the way you see the world? Um, I think that it was a, I had a really good childhood. And when I, you know, when I got to college, I started to see how much dysfunction was there was out there. And I think that, you know, in some ways I wasn't prepared for it because I never had to argue my points. I never had to you know, claim a stake on, on what I was fighting for in those ways. And I think it was actually going to college when I had to, you know, my eyes were open to the fact that, you know, the world and life and way you communicate and you have to really um, uh, champion yourself or champion your ideas are, is, is so critical. So, um, you know, I would say that they have always given me this feeling of security and confidence and you can be whatever you want to be. Um, not necessarily given me the ability to have the critical thinking to think on your own and respond that way, but definitely to know what it's like to act like a productive functional team because we were a great family still are. 
That's a really interesting take. Good, like not necessarily the bad, but the but what you didn't get and what you had to learn on your own then because you had such a good family dynamic. As you got into the working world and as your career has unfolded, what would you say is the top one or two, let's say most surprising things you have learned about yourself as a oh professional God. or as a human being? Oh, you know, it's that one of those things is the more you go through life, the more you realize you don't know, right? And so that's one of those things. I've become more and more humble. I went to an Ivy League college and, you know, you thought you're a master of the universe, Wharton undergrad, finance and studied Mandarin and traveled the world and had great jobs out of college. But, the you know, the more you learn and the more you take on as you grow in your career, the more you learn that you, you really don't know a lot, but you get better and better at certain things. And um, so that's that's one of them. And, and that really teaches you all the time to be uh, humble and willing to listen to people and learn from them. And, and, you know, the newest person on my team, even if they're an intern, is someone that I can learn from and that I value and appreciate. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just that that's the other thing is that there is really no someone is better than someone else. And if you're the CEO and you might also be the janitor, if you're a startup and when you're starting out, but that every person you bring to the table has something that you will learn from and gain from, and that will contribute. And it's important to keep your eyes and ears open for that. Very interesting. And I think I agree. One of the things I have learned over the last few years not just learn, but also become very comfortable with, and tell me if you relate, is is the idea of what I don't know, but but really being okay with that and almost being like excited at what what else is there to learn that I don't know yet. And that just being almost like a motivating factor. Because I think, um, I'd say particularly like in my case, running an expertise-driven business, but even in your case, you have to have the domain expertise, right? Um, there can be this fear of like, I have to know everything, uh, which I think can actually limit your potential in a lot of ways. Um, it can prevent you from like reading more books because, or researching new things because you're more focused on like, how do I protect the knowledge I do have? But the shift I've really had has been like, just understanding that in the entire spectrum of knowledge, there will always be more that I don't know versus what I do know. And mm -hmm. just understanding that like, wait, I, but I can just keep learning. I'm never going to get there. It's always going to be imbalanced against, against me, but that's what makes it fun. And what keeps me going is knowing that there's, there is still more to go and I'm never going to run out of things to learn. Yep. No, that's a great perspective. Yep. I think another thing that I learned First, you know, it's it's one thing to hear this and study it, right, in business school or or hear it at, when it's spoken to you. But when you are running a business, and whether it's a, a services firm or or a technology company or whatever it may be, you have to wear many hats when you get started, right? But then you have to look strategically at which hats do you not really do well, and which hats do you not like to do. Right. Because those are the hats that you need to find other people who can do better than you and who like to do those so that you can perform at your best and do the things that you like the most, because that's when you're going to get the most out of yourself as well as your team. And I always you know, that's that's some of the best advice I ever had, because it allows you to, you know, if you can look, you know, 
if you can once a quarter sit back and say, is, am I doing what I like to do and what I want to do here? And can others do it better? And how do you find those right people to do it? It's it's a it's a maybe a less quantitative way, a less KPI driven way of figuring out you know some of your your next moves as you build your organization, but still just as important. Let's talk about SASMAX. Um, you know, it it's it's funny to say like almost in like startup terms. It's been around for eight plus years now, a little over eight years, which is in startup land, it's like, oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. that, that's like forever, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah but I really think it. it just means you've built a business that is sustainable over that time. Um, how did SASMAX get started? And and what made you say, I have to start, I have to build a company about this specific topic of channel reselling and and here's what I'm gonna do with it. Yeah. So when I first, um, I had a company prior to this called Critical Digital Data, data, which I um, had sold, and it was all about data storage. And as we all know, cloud-based data storage became the thing. And, and it was just AWS was just moving out of beta at that point in time into a regular product offering. And we were hosted on AWS and um, data storage was hot, but becoming very commoditized. And we sold that company. And at that time, I was able to be reflective on what do I want to do next? And what I had learned from having that data storage company was that I had not myself understood the, the channel, the, the IT channel that existed out there, which is like a, a multi-billion dollar sector. I think it's responsible for selling something like $400 billion a year in uh, software, hardware, communications, infrastructure to business, to B2B. And had I known about it sooner in the game, I would have priced my product differently. I would have gone to market differently. I would have put a uh, an emphasis, a different emphasis on going to market through this, this channel sector. And I, while I did fine in our exit, I could have really capitalized on a whole other go-to-market strategy that I hadn't realized existed until afterward or until it was too late, really. So in, in looking at that and realizing that SaaS was still at its infancy and emerging tech is still growing like crazy and cybersecurity is, was still growing, not even really a big topic then, um, I recognized that there was this opportunity to help SaaS vendors to go to market through the channel and then also help the channel find the right um the right technologies, the right SaaS companies and, and, and newer innovative uh, tools that are coming to market. So that was the initial formation of SaaSmax is to be that company that bridges the gap between the vendors and the partners and create new market opportunities through that. We started as a marketplace and um, we and, and that marketplace evolved into distribution, which is kind of the same thing, except the reality that solution providers, channel partners don't spend their life online looking for software products to buy and bring to their customer. That's the reality. <laughs> so that's a really good lesson for um, startups to understand is you might have the best product in the world and you may want to build a partner program. It doesn't mean that the channel partners are all going to find you and the gates are going to open up just because you're ready to go. They're really busy people. They're selling and servicing and maintaining their clients' accounts on some of their core, you know, based on solutions they specialize in and core competencies. And um, so what I learned quickly was that we, we needed to help the vendors find the right partners. And to do that through a marketplace was a little bit hard to do that way. And there was it was the partners joining the marketplace were pretty interesting, but they didn't they weren't a one size fits all. So 
If you are a cybersecurity company, you might be wanting to sell through channel partners who are managed service providers, but do you want managed service providers who are honed in on enterprise or small business or medium business? That's a very different type of company, that channel partner. If you're selling into HR, if you have an HR product or a MarTech or a business intelligence product, you certainly can't sell through a channel partner that is focused on cybersecurity. And so we had our own problem to solve, which is how are we going to find and match the right partner to these vendors so that they could leverage us to grow. And that led us to say, we need to build a platform because there's nothing else that we could find that existed to be able to find the right partners um, and know enough about them to know that this would be the right fit. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. And so we were lucky enough to, um, through through some of the networking I had done and being on panels and, and being in um, the channel at like the CompTIA Vendor Advisory Council, I was talking to big companies like VMware and ABG and IBM, uh, com Microsoft, companies like that, where I learned that they too have the problem of saying, you know, we know who our top 5% best partners are, but we don't know enough about all of our partners to know which ones are even worth us spending money on and investing in, um, which ones are worth letting go because quality really trumps quantity. And what happens is without the ability to access data and know who all these partners are, you go for quantity and sort of spray and pray and hope some of them turn into good partners. So um, having some of those kinds of companies become part of our initial um, initiatives to build our partner database around and do our data mining and, and use them as guinea pigs to, um, to help them understand their partners better was a way that we were able to start to productize Partner Optimizer and start to do a better job of finding and profiling partners so that they could, uh, so that all sorts of vendors from emerging SaaS vendors up to IoT to CRM and business intelligence and hardware and anything in B2B tech is now able to leverage our engine to look to search based upon an ideal partner profile that matches your ideal customer profile so that you can now find those partners so much faster than you could ever do in the past. Now, I'm curious, because you said SaaS was a little bit more in like its infancy um, at that time, eight, eight years ago. I'm trying to remember myself at that time. Was SaaS like a prevalent acronym yet? Or was it still like, a, was it still was not used that often? So it was still, you could find it like 20 million times by searching Google, right? It right. was still that out there. It's just that it wasn't as well known. It was, um, it, was a, it was definitely a newer term. Most people didn't know it, hadn't heard of it. In the startup sector, if you used it, it didn't mean that investors knew what it was or prospective investors understood what it was. And people were still trying to understand what does it mean to be hosted in the cloud or delivered uh -huh. as a service in the cloud. So there was a lot of that happening still. And um, we actually had a blog, or we have a blog called YSAS, which we had a lot of fun with. We've, we've had a lot of play on the words and don't be yeah. a sass hole. Oh, wow. Oh, like YSAS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. YSAS.com. <laughs> yeah. Great. So there's um, lots of sassisms and we were able to 
play on that. With but did customers. you run into that? Maybe not with investors, but like with potential customers. I'm just curious out of the gate with the name of SAS Max. I'm assuming you launched as the name SAS Max. Perhaps you changed over time, but right. did you no, run into actually, any like brand issues where people were not sure what it meant? Not so much. We actually had um, and still have, you know, good 10 to 20 vendors every day reaching out, looking for ways and paths to market through channel partners and having that focus around SAS initially was definitely helpful um, to them. It was like we, we were sort of a, a home home base for them because they knew we understood what their business model was and that we understood how to talk about them to channel partners. Um, channel partners typically are more understanding of SaaS than end user customers, right? So we didn't have that technology challenge in the same way as maybe going to market on the with a customer. The channel partners are actually those messengers and to say, I'm selling a solution to you. The solution happens to be in the cloud and you use it online in a browser-based methodology, but they're selling the value of the product, which is another component that's so important. And it used to be that startups said, I'm a SaaS company, and that meant they're special. But right. it's, when you're selling SaaS, it's not about the fact that it's SaaS, right? You're selling a, a tool that's providing a va value, efficiency, opportunity to grow faster, communicate better, whatever it may be. And you're don't, don't get stuck in putting SaaS at the start of things. SaaS is a part of how you do it as opposed to the reason you do it. Dead on, dead on. So let's explore our topic for today a little bit further, which is again, using channel partnerships as a go-to-market strategy. Um, I just want to um, reset the playing field for everyone and just give a textbook like fundamental definition so we're all on the same page here. When we talk about a channel partnership, um, Dina, perhaps you can direct this definition a little bit better than I can, but I'm thinking it is a external company that, will, that has agreed to sell your product or service on, on their behalf or, or excuse me, on your behalf in exchange for some type of... Um, uh, commission mm -hmm. or compensation, right? Yeah. yeah. And the way we typically talk about it is that a company will have a direct sales force, right? Which are your sales reps and your direct marketing funnel. And then if you decide to have a channel partner program, that means you have an indirect sales force, right? And that means they're one tier away. So they're not, you're not employing them. You don't have to spend any money on salary with them. Um, but they are, they are people who have a feet on the street that can reach your ideal customer. They have the ability potentially to service that customer with additional um, consultative or onboarding or um, setup if, if your product requires it. And they'll do that all basically for commission um, or for a margin. And it's a really great strategy if you have the right products to, to do that with. And they also are really important influencers for your product. And they are already selling the other adjacent solutions that fit into the stack for your ideal customer. So um, sometimes it's called distribution because you may go through a distributor who then has either direct customers or a distributor who works with reseller partners, channel partners. Mm -hmm. And so it's either a one tier or a two tier or a three tier channel partner program. So if a company is going to execute this as part of their go-to-market strategy, um, 
let's talk about like who does it actually make sense for and what mm-hmm. conditions need to be satisfied or what market conditions need to exist in order for a company to even like consider if this is the right strategy for them? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it's so important because uh, you want to really think those questions through before you actually take action on it. And you and you want to put together really a business plan around building a channel partner program to figure that out. And so one of those things is who are the buyers that you have? What are your ideal customers and how do they typically buy uh, other things that would be considered in the solution stack of what you sell. Um, typically, if you say there's nothing else out there, um, nowadays, I don't believe that, right? I mean, maybe Salesforce.com had it with a CRM when there was no other CRM, but there really was. There were there were software companies that existed that were on-premise to manage your customer relationship management. It may not have been a cloud-based one, but when you think about who are your competitors, how are they going to market? If they're going to market through channel partners, um, you probably want to as well because they've already been proving out that it's a successful path to market. Um, If you have something that's really boutique and extremely expensive that you really need your direct salespeople to go one-on-one with, um, then it's it's probably not. Um, But otherwise, if you're looking at going after uh, more customers and you want to hit other places outside of your an, you know, immediate geographic region, having channel partners is a really strong way to go. So does that mean if it does make sense for a company that they should automatically execute a channel strategy or are there potentially drawbacks that they still need to consider? Well, there's also the timing of it, right? Let's say that you don't even have 15 or 25 customers yet right? Um, You don't want to execute a channel strategy without knowing how to effectively sell your own solutions and work with customers directly. Because firstly, you know how you need to know how to sell your products really well before you expect a channel partner to figure it out. They're going to look to you for the blueprint, for the roadmap, for um, for the collateral, for the ways that they can use to easily sell your product. So you definitely want to have experience with direct selling of your product before you ever touch a channel partner. And you also want to make sure that you really have a pricing strategy in place that leaves room for them to make money. You want them to make money. You want to incentivize them. You want there to be margin. And if you underprice your product uh, and don't consider that, you're going to lose the ability to include them and compensate them in the process. So that's another component that's really important. So that actually hits on something that I've long wondered and I'm hoping you can address is, so obviously there's, there is the compensation impo- component as far as the what's in it for them. Uh, and, and then if they're set up with the right collateral, that's also helpful, right? It takes the legwork out from them. But what is it that's like, what is it that's driving another company who already sells their own product and presumably takes up a lot of their time to just sell their own thing? What's driving them to be like, oh, yeah, we'll also sell your thing, even though I could probably make more money if I sold my product and just focused on that. And I'm thinking about like the individual like sales rep level here. Like, yeah, I can make money selling yours, but the commission I make off of that is not as much as what I make just focusing on my own product that our company sells. So what's driving the, the 
yes, let's do this on their side? Yeah, that's a good question. So typically a channel partner is selling their services and they're selling products that they didn't build themselves. Okay. They may wrap or white label a product, right? They may consume a product themselves, which they then sell as a service, but they are not a vendor per se, right? Um, they are there to, first and foremost, when you, when you talk to these kinds of partners, their customers come first. They are looking for the right solutions to make their customers' businesses operate efficiently and, and um, successfully and with, uh, you know, with, with security, um, whatever it may be. And they may be a partner who focuses on Microsoft licensing and installing and managing Office 365 and, and Azure and things like that. It may be cloud infrastructure. They may be system integrators. They may be um, CRM consultants. They might be accountants, right? These are mostly service provider businesses who are not in the business of having their own product per se, unless they're combining it to include yours and others as part of what they sell as a service-based product. So you don't have to, typically in the channel, right? Um, you're not talking about them choosing between their own product versus yours. They're choosing typically to add your product to their line card, which allows them to earn more margin. It should also potentially earn them more service revenue, right? Let's say that you have the, when you, when they sell your product, maybe they can't earn too much per product or per license, but if they're able to get an additional you know, several thousand dollars to set it up and implement and train and, and keep it managed as a managed service. Um, that's another value add for them and way to capture um, both profit and revenue to cover their staff and to be more in-depth of what they're offering to their client base. So you're allowing them to stay much more relevant and important to their customers too. I want to talk a little bit more about this pricing and like the earnings aspect of it. Um, if I'm a company that's seeking distribution or reseller partners, and let's say my product is cost, let's say the average um, sale for my product is like $30,000. Okay. Am I going to the reseller and saying, you're actually going to sell it for 36 K and take a six K cut on it? Or am I saying you're going to sell it for 30 K and we're going to give you whatever percent we're going to give you six K. So we make 24 and you make six. It could be yes and yes. Okay. That's part of thinking about how you want to design your program, right? Do you want your partners to sell it as a white label that they, um, you know, that that's part of their brand and then they upsell that, right? So they're buying from you wholesale and they can sell it for whatever they want on top. Or is your brand name really important and important to the customer such that they're acting more like a reseller? And so when you're buying and licensing the product, you're going to give them commission or you're going to tell them this is the MSRP. You earn everything between, you know, in between that and the wholesale price. Or maybe it's just a referral partner, right? Maybe they're an influencer or someone that is a blogger or um, maybe they don't want to do any of the selling and you need to do all the selling and the support and the service. And so you say, I'll give you commission for that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's any and all of the above, right? And it, that really comes down to what is your ideal partner's business model, right? So once you determine what your ideal partner is, um, that's part of thinking about it and building a partner program that's going to be optimal for them to want to do business with you. Got it. 
Okay, so then let's talk about who the ideal partner is and how someone should go about figuring that out. Um, if if I'm mapping this out and I'm looking mm-hmm. at my, you know ideal partners, what are the things I need to be saying? Okay, I need to look for this. I need to look for this. I need to look for this. And also on their end, um, or not on their end, I should say, once I figure that out, how do I go about actually like finding these people and, and, and getting in front of them? Right. Well, so I love talking about this. So stop me if I talk too long, because this is what we do all day long. Right. Um, So to build an ideal partner profile, um, it's important to look at these different attributes. There's four buckets, we'd say, uh, or four different core attributes, and then there's several below it. And so the one of the top attributes we want to know is what are your what is your ideal partner's business model? right? How do they want to do business with you? And how do they do business with their customer? It's important for you to really think through that and and understand that. Then you want to know what specializations, what solutions and specializations that they have and services that they provide to their customer, right? Because if they're providing marketing services and you're a cybersecurity app, it's probably a bad fit. So what are those core offerings that you expect them to have, the core expertise that they have that when they're going and getting a new customer, they're being hired to do. And similarly, what product types are they expert in and do they work with or do they resell? Because those are the things that make it important uh, to, to be a good alignment. And that actually moves over to what is the tech stack that they represent. So in that area, we look at competing as well as adjacent, as well as ecosystem. So are they carrying and working with competitors of yours already? Which ones are they? Are they working too closely with them? Because if they're working too closely with them, you may not be able to pull them away. They may be very loyal. Um, Do you want to steal market share or do you want to go after partners who don't already have your product? That's a question to ask. Um, Wait, so let let me pause you there. So is this to say you could potentially have a channel partner who also does sell your competitor, but they choose to sell yours as well as maybe like a hey, here's our list of offers we have to their customers. Which one do you like? Exactly. And it may be related to an ecosystem. Like, let's say that they're specialized in cybersecurity, but half of their part, half of their customers are in the Microsoft world and half are in the Google world or the SAP world. Mm -hmm. There are different products and solutions that, that fit into the stacks that are right for that customer based upon what their ecosystems are. And so it's something that's important to consider and think about. And if you're really focused as a cybersecurity vendor, as a cybersecurity channel partner, they're going to probably have a lot of that or specialize in one area over another area. So it's important to consider that. And it's the same thing with knowing what other products are adjacent. And so let's say that you are a cybersecurity product and you knew that endpoint protection was synergistic and API security and um, website security and email security, but yours is something else, those might all be part of a very existing, an existing tech stack that already has customers that are buying from a partner. And so that your product would be great to add on. So adjacent is typically a stronger way to focus on than competing unless you're just a better mousetrap than the prior older version, right? So the so, four core attributes, we have business, right. their core, excuse me, their business model, their core specialization, 
their tech stack. And what was the fourth one? So then there's, well, there's, I mean, those are actually two buckets, right? So partner persona is that first one that's about the business model and the solutions. They specialize in everything about what their expertise is. Then there's the tech stack, right? Then there's the customer focus, which is very much what is your ideal customer profile and is theirs aligning with yours? Hmm. So what vertical markets, right? What customer size is their comfort zone? What customer types? Are they government or not or nonprofit or are they education focused or, or businesses, right? It's important to understand those as well. And then there's also this, this extra bucket where we call really in-depth knowledge, so certifications, partner programs they belong to, um, compliance that they've specialized in or earned so that you can understand how deeply expert they are in these different areas. Mm. So I know it sounds complex, but if you can put that together and understand that your best partners all have them these most similar characteristics, you're going to hit that golf ball closer to the hole from the beginning than you ever would if you just guess. Mm. You know, spraying and praying is sort of the way of the past. You have the tools today to be able to hone in and hyper-target, and you des- you you owe it to your investors and to yourself and to your, your sales team and your channel team to say, we want to find those best partners because they're going to have the best customer opportunities for us. Hmm. I want to continue on this and also get into how we should be reaching out to potential partners before that, Bill. I just want to take a step back here as we're doing all this season is featuring different startup hype man companies and their pitches, uh, specifically using the K-PASA pitch formula um, that we use at Startup Hype Man with all of our clients. Today, we're going to be featuring Swish House for you hoops lovers out there. Um, So listen, if you love basketball, maybe you went to a spin class, but you couldn't figure out the resistance level on the bike. So then you tried hit, but the kettlebell swings hurt your back. So then you go to CrossFit and that's just way too aggressive and who wants to flip tires anyways? Pilates, you felt out of place. And then that guy at the gym just grunts with every rep. Why put up with options that are hard to get up for, hard to find, feel like hard work and hard to feel like you fit in just to stay in shape. Instead, why not come to Swish House and burn a thousand calories without even knowing it? Swish House is the basketball fitness community for people who love the game and want to actually look forward to hitting the gym. You'll feel like a kid again, training like your favorite NBA player with the perfect combo of classic team shooting contests, an array of these individual drills, hoops themed hit stations, and you'll also get a high five at the end when you hit the buzzer beater. We all know if we've played before, we all know there's no better shape than basketball shape. So whether you played on your driveway, played in college, or you just like to shoot around, make Swish House your new home. Get started today with a $10 introductory class. Lace up with us at swishhouse.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Dina Moskovitz, the founder and CEO of SASMAX. And our topic is using channel partnerships as a go-to market strategy. Um, what I wanted to continue on, Dina, was you talked about the four core uh, ideal partner attributes, um, which are around business model, core specialization, tech stack, and, and their ideal customer profile themselves and having alignment there. Let's say you figured all this stuff out. How do you actually get in front of these people? Yeah, well, so I just also want to bring up that, like, I, you know, one of the things we developed in our AI-driven platform is the ability to come up with all those terms really fast, right? So that could be an onerous process. You need to have your stakeholders involved. But we have the ability to profile partners who 
are your most successful ones or ones you you already have sort of have your eye on and hone in on what makes them, you know, what attributes they already have so that you can way more quickly determine what that ideal profile is and then start to do the recruiting and finding them. So that, that would, so, so basically those four core attributes are what you've built the SAS Max's software around to be able to easily pick out who those ideal partners would be. Exactly. Because it, in the past, it's been an onerous process, very laborious. Um, you spend expensive resources and, and your own. <laughs> yeah. And and so our goal was to say, we know those partners are out there for you. We want you to talk to the right ones. We as channel, channel executives in our past lives had those same problems ourselves. And it could take months to just find those right ones. And then it takes time to activate them. And um, you're spending all sorts of time and energy. So by knowing them in the first minutes to hours to weeks, then you can start on the next phase, which is recruiting them and then onboarding them and training them and engaging and activating them and keeping them in involved. Mm. And that's where storytelling is so important too, because the next thing, once you know who those right partners are and you know enough about them, you want to build a story that is going to engage them. You want to talk to them and in, 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 in a very clear cut way of what's in it for them. Why should they care about your product? Why is it different from everything else? What's the competitive advantage that's going to allow them to service their client first and foremost, right? They care typically less about how much money they're going to make and more about the value they're going to provide to their end customer. Mm. And so if you have that story crafted really well, which is something that you do so well, Rajiv, um, it's really important in terms of planning everything out before you then go to recruit. If you have that in place and you know you're talking to the right partners, then it's really just about dialing and emailing and webinars and showing up and making sure you do whatever you can to get their attention because you already know they're the right partners for you and um, you should be able to close them and, and get them on their way. One thing I don't want to overlook here is the importance of as the company seeking channel resellers, you have to have like your own shit together and you have to know how, like how is your own product sold? You can't just outsource that as guesswork to other people, right? It sounds like it's not just that you give them a product. You have to also let them know. And here's how the, here's how you describe value of this thing. Here's how we sell it. Here's how you can sell it, right? It can't just be make some money by taking our product and trying to totally farm out the legwork in that sense. Right. It's, you know, there's two sides, right? One is that you might have a product that can only go to market through the channel, which really a lot of cybersecurity companies have that situation where they need the experts and those experts need to be able to provide the service to their end client. Right. And so those companies, if you're, if you're one of those, you typically know who you are. Um, and sometimes those solution providers or channel partners are even your customer. And other times it's about like, for example, Zoom, right? Zoom is easy to take to market and had a lot of small businesses get, get there. But um, and with the with the boom in the pandemic, uh, they were able to build out a channel partner program and enable uh, all these other channel partners who already knew customers for them to now be able to offer it. And so they developed, a, you know, uh, over the last year, they really penetrated the channel and distribution and have now made it easy for channel partners to participate in that upsell. One thing you mentioned in, in that like um, distribution strategy or, or getting in front of 
partner strategy. You mentioned webinars as one of the potential um, avenues. Mm-hmm. Is that to say like host a webinar literally on the topic of how to become a channel partner of ours, or is it host a webinar on some expertise on the topic? And then people naturally from that might say, can we resell what you have? Well, it's like marketing 101, right? You have to start to touch point them and you need to have multiple programs, multiple events and collateral to to introduce them to both. You may want to have a webinar that introduces the channel, uh, the channel chief, right? Uh, who's talking about the partner program itself, but also talking about the, uh, the product, but a separate demo when it comes to the product, because first they want to know, you know, what's, you know, what is the partner program? How channel friendly are you? Are you going to help us to get our first sales? Are you going to compensate us? What, what are your terms? And, and so that's one conversation, the business com- conversation, and separately is the product demo conversation. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. So there's lots of when you're first building your partner program and you don't have enough partners in the first place, you may want to address it differently than if you have a lot of partners already. Right. So when you have, you definitely want to have some training videos and onboarding videos so that um, as they do join your partner program, they can, they can work at their at their pace. And it's very much like when you're going after direct sales, you want to treat them like, you know, you're, you're selling to them and you may have the best product in the world, but you have to explain to them why you, and, and it is a relationship-based you know, situation, they become your sales rep, right? So you want them to feel loyal to you. They, you want them to like you and trust you first and foremost, because if they don't, it's not as important to them. You're one of several products for them. Now, if you've got a, you know, a partner network set up and you, they're starting to sell your product, is it like, so with an internal sales team, you've got all of your reps on quota. Right. Are you supposed to put partners on quota as well? Or is it just like anything that comes from them is gravy and you don't have like a real expectation of how much they're supposed to be bringing in per quarter, per half year, per year? So that's a fantastic question. Uh, novice channel executives don't typically structure things as well as they could and should. But yes, in our sector, in when you come to very professional channel partner programs, there are typically like a silver, gold, and platinum tier. And you, when you earn certain levels you of, of transaction and activity, you will get better benefits. You will get higher compensation. You will get um, trips around the world. You know, there are there are lots of ways to incentivize and and get them to earn up to different levels. And you, you've probably heard of it mostly like from the Microsoft world, you know, yeah. being a Microsoft gold partner is a really um, big status to, to get to. And those Microsoft gold partners are a whole different game than just a Microsoft business partner or authorized partner per se. Right. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, I've got, a couple more quick questions here before we begin our wrap up. Um, so let's say you've got a, a distribution network set up. Um, let's use that 30K example again, where um, what you sell to your direct customers is $30,000. You tell them, sell it for 30 and take 6K off the top. So we'll keep 24, you keep six. Um, again, just hypothetical numbers here. Mm-hmm. What if I miscalculated? And after several months, I'm like, oh crap, actually... 
that doesn't work out so well in our favor. How like does that ever happen? And how would one go about uh, addressing that? Or are you just stuck with like, well, it's what you signed, so? Well, you don't want to. It, that also depends on the relationship you have with that partner, right? You don't want to upset them because they could potentially take your business somewhere else, right? It's their customer. And it's really important to acknowledge that. And that um, if you don't, some some vendors come through and only want to give you an upfront fee versus an evergreen fee for the life of the license, hmm. right? Well, it's really hard, as we all know, to um, it's, it's a lot easier to upsell and resell an existing customer than it is to have to go find new customers. And so if you want to disincentivize a partner to continue their clients with you, you're probably going to see that situation occur. If you've priced everything incorrectly, you're probably going to have to bite the bullet on the existing transactions and customers already in place. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't change your pricing and, and plans going forward and, and have new you know, new MSRPs and new, uh, you know, new compensation tables. And you probably do want to talk to that partner and explain the situation. Um, but they're, again, if they're your partner in this and they're, they're also earning potentially service revenue around your product, you should be fine. And, and if they love your product, again, you should be fine because you've developed a trusted relationship with them. And that's why not just treating them like an affiliate link, is is really important because they're more than an affiliate tracking link, right? These are people with businesses, with customers that really uh, they they could move the needle for you. So, okay. yeah, that kind of segues then into my my last question here before we wrap up is, um, how do you ensure that the relationship is like? I think it's one thing to set up the relationship. Uh, it's another art and skill entirely to maintain the relationship. So what advice do you have to maintain a, a healthy channel relationship? Um, well, that you have a designated person on your team responsible for nurturing those relationships and making sure that your partners are happy and that you're addressing their needs on demand as they, as they have them and that you're treating them just like you would treat a member of your own sales team, right? Um, if they are not producing, it's okay to let them go right? Um, or find out why, why they're not. Mm. Uh, it doesn't, it, it sometimes having, you know, having too many partners and, and a lot of them not working out is a waste of time. Also, another good tip is when you're hiring a channel sales executive, because when you build a channel, for those don't, who don't know it, you have probably someone who's called like the channel chief, but then you have a channel sales team and you have a channel marketing team. And then you even potentially have a PRM, a a partner relationship management platform instead of a CRM, mm. right? And, and there are tools that help you manage your partner channel as it grows. And it's uh, it can be a really exciting and profitable part of your business, but it's not going to happen in a month or two months or even three months. You probably need to invest at least 12 to 18 months to start to see the rewards of doing that. And um and so you need to have the support of your C-suite and, and make sure your investors understand the value of building a channel when you're doing it. But it is a great long tail to have. The channel is growing. There are, I think, according to Jay McBain of Forrester, who's like one of the leading worldwide channel analysts that exist out there, um, the channel has approximately a million and a half 
companies that exist as channel partners in some way, shape or form today. And it's probably going to nearly double that over the next five to 10 years. And so it's becoming a normal, accepted way of doing business uh, into SaaS. And, and uh, it's a really important strategy. If you're not doing it, um, there's no doubt that someone in your category of your competition will. So you want to embrace those partners before this competition does. Let's uh, hit our wrap up now. First off, where can our listeners find you, learn more about you and learn more about SASMAX? Yeah, so um, SASMAX.com is spelled like S like Sam, A-A-S like Sam, M-A-X. And our platform is called Partner Optimizer, which you can learn about on sasmax.com. And to reach out to me directly, my my name is spelled D-I-N-A, Dina. It's a D like David, I-N like Nancy, A like Apple. And you can reach me at the email Dina at sasmax.com. I'd be happy to respond. Or through LinkedIn is always a great way to reach me. Um, And so, yeah, happy to answer those questions. We have... You know, I live and breathe channel and channel data and uh, would love helping emerging companies with great, uh, you know, great existing products that are ready for market, ready for channel to to do what, you know, to take it to the market. And we'll add Dina's contact info into the show notes uh, where this episode is hosted on startuphypeman.com. Dina, who is one person that you want to shout out? Oh, one person. Um, well, the person of the week really is someone on our team named Sophie Mazur. Um, she's a young person, uh, just a couple of years out of college, but she is brilliant when it comes to using project management software. And even though we thought we had our systems in great, you know, in a great place already, her, her coming onto the company has changed the ability to to manage our data in a much more efficient way, manage our customer data, if that makes sense. So she came on for customer success and and client services, and and she whipped the senior team into place in in a way that we'd never thought of. And and that's, you know, that comes back to the beginning of when we, we were talking and you said, what are some of the lessons? It's like, you know, when someone comes in with a clean slate and has new tools to work with, there's so much you can learn from them and it's going to be because of her initiatives that may probably we're going to recognize a few extra points in efficiency in our workforce. So shout out to Sophie. That's great. Shout out to Sophie. I'm sure she will appreciate hearing, hearing herself. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We'll do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on the discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Um, I think honestly, like my biggest, uh, takeaway. There was a lot of really good tactical stuff, but one thing I really want to highlight here is the importance of considering if this should be a strategy for a company or not. I think a lot of companies don't, it's not, it's really not even in their consideration set. And I do think more companies should be looking at, is this how we should go to market? Or if we're already in market, is this a supplementary way we can be expanding our market? Dina, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners? Yeah, um, I think that it's important to focus on a quality partner program over quantity. Um, You can do that nowadays by really understanding who your ideal partners are. And so even if you get 10 great partners to start, you will really reap the rewards of that, right? So focusing on quality over quantity. Um, Use data to make informed decisions. We have more and more access to data. Historically, we didn't. And so uh, that's another big lesson. 
And uh, the other thing is entrepreneurship is a lifestyle, right? We're all here as sort of we're talking. Oh, wait, wait, no, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ask you that question. (laughs) Gotcha. You got ahead of me there. Okay. Let's get there now. Okay. My final question for you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) My final question is fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. Yeah. I was excited to say it's a lifestyle, right? Um, You either are one or you're not. Right. And uh, an entrepreneur is someone that's willing to wear every hat and uncover every stone to fulfill their, you know, fulfill their vision on things and sometimes put, you know, put on blinders so that you can't other things don't get in the way or tell you you can't do it. So it truly is a lifestyle. And uh, just when you think things may be going the wrong way, don't give up because the sun rises the next morning and it's a new day and good things happen. Entrepreneurship is a lifestyle. She is Dina Moskovitz, founder and CEO of SASMAX. Dina, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thanks, Reggie. Great to, great to be here. And thanks for uh, learning about the channel with me. Thank you. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.